Thanks, Justin. I was thinking you were coming to Open Door for three years under my ministry, and you thought, but I think you'd be in better shape. I don't, you know, anyway. That was supposed to be funny. Anyway, sorry. Actually, it's really been good to get to know Justin far beyond this young person who's coming to our church, but he's become a friend, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Parker Palmer, in his book, um, A Hidden Wholeness, in trying to describe the essence of the human soul, compares the soul, interestingly, to a wild animal. Because like a wild animal, he says, the soul is tough and resilient, resourceful and savvy, self-sufficient. It knows how to survive in hard places. Yet despite its toughness, the soul is shy. Just like a wild animal, it seeks safety in the dense underbrush. It hides, especially when other people are around. So if you want to see the wild animal, your own soul actually, we know that the last thing you should do is go crashing through the woods yelling for it to come out. But if we walk quietly into the woods, sit patiently at the base of a tree, breathe with the earth, and fade into our surroundings, the wild creature, the soul, might make an appearance, and so my, and so my soul in silence waits. Yesterday I tried to make a case for the fact that the rhythms that you've been talking about of work and rest and that I began to talk about yesterday of silence and solitude are not just for a certain kind of person, um, which is, has been my impression for many years, who has like nothing to do and, and no desire to do it, but there's just, just the opposite is true, that the more um, actively engaged you are in mission and wanting to stay in that mission um, for the long haul, the more critically important some of these rhythms and practices are. And if that's true for you, that these rhythms and practices are becoming more interesting to you and, and you're kind of warming up to them even just a little bit, you need to know going in that there are some obstacles to them. You're probably facing some of them. And what I want to do is talk about some of them today. And, and, and it's, it's really a thing about becoming aware of these things. The first obstacle, I think, is that is most obvious and maybe the biggest obstacle, and it's going to sound like an old man saying this, but it's the culture, the culture anyway. It is. The, the culture in general um, does not support or reward this kind of thing. You don't get a raise for resting. You get a raise for not resting. Um, you get a raise for producing. You get a raise for never resting. Sometimes even in the religious culture, uh, the same kind of spirit is there because it's often how big and how fast the church is growing, how big the church is, how much we do, how many are coming, and there can be to that a frenetic pace. I remember some years ago, we, we started this thing uh, late summer, uh, moving into the fall, and if you know about church rhythms, that's when everything is ramping up at the end of the summer, and so we started doing this retreat with the staff, bringing them away, and we called it Wasting Time with God. We had no agenda where there was no work to do, and everybody just had to chill, play golf, talk to each other, drove us crazy, um, and it made us aware of how frenetic we had become because the resting thing was so antithetical to the gear we were in, and it was a bit of a wake-up call. Um, and when we think about the pace we live at, Sometimes we might in our minds reject it in our heads. The truth is this some of us live with this subterranean buzz 
that you can't turn off, and what it generates in a lot of us is this anxiety, and the anxiety is this, and I think this is what's driving some of the frenetic behavior. The anxiety is this, you're just gonna miss out, that you're gonna fall behind, that you can't keep up, so it's never enough, and the only solution is to keep going, keep running, never slow down, certainly never stop, and it's not just work life and career advancement or even school stuff that you've got to deal with, family schedules, I see this up front, I see this up close in the context of church, family schedules get insane, that's stuff that you're gonna have to deal with as well, where you have to be at every event, you have to be at every sport, every game, you have to be involved in everything, and, and, and there's not like a shame on you thing connected to that, what's important here is to wonder why. What, why, why? And this is where you begin to make some progress because it doesn't help to just stop doing that. Like I tell you, don't do that anymore. Anyway, that doesn't help. What does help maybe is what's driving all of that? What's behind all of that? What lies are we maybe believing? Because we're lied to every day in ways we don't even know. It's the water we swim in, actually. We get lied to about what the good life is what gives value to you, what actually makes you happy, how you can be happy, what you have to look like and how, what you have to act like and what you have to have to be okay and the lies are just pervasive. I mean, again, it's the water that we swim in and without even knowing it, those things drive us for more. Dallas Willard, uh, this is several years ago, I was with a group of pastors and we were with Dallas Willard and we were talking about a number of things, that, but he was addressing our drivenness, the, the, the guys in the room, driven people and good people. And, and then he said this thing that kind of shook us up a bit. He said, if you're working more than 50 to 55 hours a week, you may think that what's driving that is your devotion to God, and I'm sure that part of it is. But if you're working like that, um, you're not doing it for God. You're doing it for yourself, like a slap in the face. And you can take that from Dallas Willard because he's very kind, but that was a wake-up call. The, the, the question around that thing, what's driving you, the, the, the inability to slow down and create a life rhythm that's healthy and, and that can be sustained, the questions are like this, like, what are you trying to prove? Because you're trying to get something when you can't slow down. What are you trying to earn? What voice in your head are you even trying to silence? If I could just do enough, this condemning voice would maybe stop condemning me because there's, busy, there's a busyness that provides for us actually, while we look like we're so active, it actually provides a way for us to hide. Whatever it is that we're afraid of, so the busyness sometimes can be a very clever way to avoid sometimes intimacy. I mean, Justin said yesterday that, that, that busyness and hurriedness is one of the greatest enemies to intimacy with God, and um, quite frankly, I'd like to avoid that. We don't know consciously that we're doing that, but it's a great way to do it, um, to run away from pain, because if you just keep going and you just keep moving and you never slow down, you'll never have to face how empty you sometimes feel. Technology is an obstacle, and as I wade into this one, please know I'm not going to rail on technology and the evils of I love technology. I think it's great, but here's the deal about technology. We need to be aware of some things. This technology thing that's been designed to make our life easier and save us time, and in many ways it has, in many other ways 
Instead of making our lives easier, it's made our lives more complicated, devouring sometimes our time because now you don't, you don't ever have to unplug. I mean, you really can go 24-7. Nicholas Carr, in a book I found, just, just a title was fascinating. He calls it The Shallows. The subtitle is What the Internet is Doing to Our Brain presents compelling evidence that what it's doing to our brain is affecting how we process information and the speed with which we do it, resulting, says Carr, in our growing inability to pay attention to any one thing for very long at all, ultimately resulting, he says, in a physiological inability to access what Carr calls deep brain thinking, which means that when you can't access deep brain thinking, you can't think anything through. It's, it's, it's always going to be understood kind of on a, a surface level. You can't think it through. I've got a friend who's a therapist, um, and we were talking about this kind of thing, and he talked about this young student who had come to him and had come to see him like eight times for eight sessions, and on the ninth session, he took the family car to the session, and he got, it didn't have GPS, and on the way, the ninth time to this guy's office, he got lost on this ninth one because the car didn't have GPS and, and they had a conversation about that, and they, it was kind of an awakening for him because the reflexive instinct this guy had, and I can relate to this as well. You don't have to be a 19-year-old person. The reflexive instinct that says, I need to think, like, how do I get there? Um, the reflexive instinct was shifted to, oh, um, I need to search. Not I need to think, I need to search. I need to Google this. It's not evil. It, you need to be aware. There's something missing there. At certain levels, Neil Postman, find this fascinating, wrote a book 30 years ago entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he identified not technology as something that is something we need to be aware of, but entertainment as being one of the obstacles to this kind of uh, um, rhythm or this kind of sanity in living, contending that modern education, politics, journalism, and even religion have become subject to Get this, they've become subject to and have largely taken the form of entertainment. He begins the book, actually, with this fascinating perspective. Now, this is from 30 years ago, that while America was keeping their eye on 1984, which would have been around that time, and 1984 is a reference to George Orwell's nightmare vision in 1949. George Orwell wrote this book in 1949 about what life would be like in 1984. And the book was called 1984, made a big splash. Some of you probably have read it. It was all that Big Brother stuff, and it came in the context of a lot of fear in the culture of, of Nazism and totalitarian governments and Big Brothers watching all that kind of stuff. So there was this real apocalyptic vision that Orwell had, and it even intensified the fear. But here's what um, this guy is saying, that year finally came, 1984 finally came, Orwell's prediction didn't. So Americans sang softly in praise to themselves because the roots of democracy had held and wherever else the terror of Orwell's nightmare had actually happened, it hadn't happened here in America. But, Postman says, along with Orwell's nightmare vision, there was another slightly older and slightly less well-known, though equally chilling vision that had been written kind of in that same Vain, Aldous Huxley's book entitled The Brave New World. You may have read that. And contrary to 
common belief, Postman says, even among educated people, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns, and this is fascinating as I go through this, Orwell warns that we will be overcome by externally imposed oppression, Nazism, the big bad government thing. In Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As Huxley Huxley saw it, people will come to love their oppression and the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books Huxley feared was this, that there would be no reason to ban books, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared that we would be overwhelmed with information and it would reduce us to a passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. In Orwell's book, people were controlled by pain. If you give them enough pain, they'll be controlled. In Huxley's, they were controlled by inflicting pleasure. See, everything in our background, says Huxley, has prepared us to know and resist a prison when the gates close around us physically. We can resist that. But who is prepared to take up arms against a sea of amusements to whom can we complain, and, and when, and in what tone of voice? When serious discourse, he says, is reduced to giggles, when a population becomes distracted by truth, when a cultural life is redefined as perpetual round of entertainment, when serious conversation becomes a form of baby talk, think the Kardashians, anyway, When people become an audience in their public business of vaudeville act, then those people are at risk. And cultural death is a clear possibility. And I'm thinking he didn't take his happy pills that day. That's my conclusion on this. And as a pastor, I just got to tell you, and I'm looking at what I think is the future of the church, um, this this affects the church. I mean, how do you get people to come to church, when, if this is the reality in the culture. I mean, how do you get them to stay once they come? How do you get them to pay attention? <laughs> how, do you, how do you get them to serve or to give? And, and, and one of the things that comes to your mind, well, if we're going to get them to come and to stay and to pay attention, we're going to have to talk baby talk too. Hmm? Become entertainers, uh, dumb it all down into sound bites, into helpful hints, into Dr. Phil with a Bible verse Attached, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, laments the Apostle Paul. Or do we, do you, next generation, leaders in the church provide intentionally an alternative to that? Not just go along with it, yeah, yeah, let's dumb it down. No, 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 don't dumb it down because the only chance we have of creating or presenting or being an alternative to what is in the culture is to make some commitments to go down a little deeper, think a little more. I've been a pastor for well over four decades, and one of the constant tensions 
over time, and it kind of comes and then it goes and it comes and then it goes, and you got to fight it back, is, is that if we go deep as a church in the teaching or in our experience or desire as a church and we make people think um, and actually expect them to grow up, um, <laughs> my friends won't come. And what if, we, what if we have the guts to say, man, I hope your friends come and I, I don't want to drive them away, but we have a commi- we're going deep and if they don't want that, we need to go deep to provide an alternative to the culture so we can go to that culture with something of substance that might just save their life. Another obstacle is that we just get caught up with the noise and we get used to the noise. We live in a very noisy world. I don't have to make... I don't have to appeal to make a big case for that. Um, there are a, a, a cacophony of voices, and all of the voices we hear in the culture are loud. There are all sorts of voices in the church, and often even in the church, they're saying very different things, and they're all yelling very loudly, and how on earth are we ever going to hear the voice unless we find a way, to, and I think one is through silence and solitude, pull away, how do we hear the one voice in the sea of other voices that are all screaming often very stupid things. But sometimes the reason we can't move to silence is because we become used to the noise and we're uncomfortable, actually very uncomfortable without it, so much so that silence feels scary to us, so we delete it. Cornelius Plantinga, in an article he wrote for Christianity Today, some years ago, entitled Background Noise, talked about people who in their attempt to delete the silence, to keep the silence at bay, would haul boom boxes to the seashore. I mean, I've been there, I've seen that, but it's a metaphor of, I need noise, I can't ever be quiet. They would haul boom boxes to the seashore so they didn't have to live in silence. Between the rolling of the surf and the crying of the seagulls, a boom box... <laughs> Helps me not hear that stuff. Even in church, he says, with some forms of contemporary worship, the silence that is potentially there gets filled with an MC's patter or with snappy Christian music that keeps the ball rolling in a service, but it never lets you, even in a service, it never lets you rest. But noisy souls, like boomboxes at the sea, drown out the sounds of the sea. It is only the quiet soul. It is only the quiet soul that can listen and hear the words and the tones and even the timbre of another person's voice and even maybe the voice of God from time to time. Mark Buchanan, in his book, The Rest of God, says that silence is the primary condition for true listening, but we have too little of it, that is silence, in part because when silence came visiting, it found us already distracted. Distracted we were by the cacophony of noise, the multitude of voices, and all of them were loud. Last one I'll mention is fear. Um, I think... um, there is a fear of going into silence. I remember we, we talk about that we have a uh, center for spiritual formation in our church. It's a two-year thing. When we come to this topic and people can start trying to experiment with 
with silence and solitude, one of the things they report on is, oh, how scared they were to do that. I relate entirely to that. And part of what they were afraid of is that what was what they would hear, what, what voices might rise. And what we heard most often was, yeah, when I get quiet, I do hear a voice, and it's a condemning voice, and then we have to help people walk through. Wait, 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 wait. If you're hearing a condemning voice, you haven't heard God's voice. That's not God's voice. But I think there's a fear of that, and, and so I'm not going here. I think second fear is that if I get quiet, um, nothing at all will be there. That's scary. What if I get quiet and nothing at all will arise, in part because... Um, I have no vision at all. Um, what if there is nothing in my heart to hear? What if there really is no strength or voice or wisdom there? So, okay, turn up the volume. <laughs> Just turn it up. I don't have to even think about that. So what are they for you? I have no idea. I think I've touched on some. Those are, by the way, those are mine. I mean, I didn't read those in a book. Those are my things and, and the things you need to be aware of. And all of a sudden, like, oh, there it is again. And I got to push it back again. What are those obstacles for you? And, and, and final question I'll leave you with. Why does it matter that we figure this out? Well, in part, it matters for the abundance of your own life, for the well-being of you. But the other reason it matters that we figure this out is because it's for the sake of others. The fullness of God coming alive in people like you, going to people out there um, without the kind of authentic fragrance of Christ on you and on me. There's nothing to give. And God has called us to that. And isn't it ironic? It just so, goes so against the grain that one of the ways to go is to first not go and slow down and be quiet and Listen to the voice, and then you'll know where to go. And I could go on, but my time is <laughs> up. Um, let me close with this, just kind of a benediction over you. And then just close your eyes and hear these. This is, this is like even just a moment of silence to reflect. Be silent. Be still. Alone. Empty before your God. Say nothing. Ask nothing. Be silent. Be still. Let your God look upon you. That is all. Right now, right here, God knows. God understands. God loves you with an enormous love. God only wants to look upon you with his love Quiet, quiet, still, be. Let God love you. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You guys, it's been great to be with you. Have a good day.